Today we're talking to Dr. Dale Bredesen, an internationally recognised neurologist who's created a 21st century approach to predict and prevent cognitive decline through holistic lifestyle changes. He's challenging the status quo when it comes to this disease and for good reason. We wanted to deep dive into this topic because dementia and Alzheimer's are the leading cause of death for women here in Australia, and that was news to me. My own family has a history with this disease, so on a personal note, I am very keen to learn more. Heads up before we kick off, today's conversation is more technical, so you can expect to hear acronyms you'll likely be unfamiliar with, but please stay with this conversation. On our socials, we'll be offering some definitions and clarification on key terms, so please join us. We are all here to learn some more. I'll catch you on the other side. Good, good. I hope you did. I hope you enjoyed it and did well. I did better than I thought, but I don't know if I would consider it well. And, and I encourage everyone to give this a go. This is on the Apollo Health website. It's a cognitive exam that you can do to see, I guess, where your brain is sitting, um, to find the average for your age. And I came in average. I think I've been average in every test I've ever performed in my life. So I, I was at a 63. <laughs> No, the, the key is just to see where you stand, and it's an easy, quick, and free way to just see where things stand. And, you know, big, the big problem here is that so many people uh, just let it sneak up on it, let problems sneak up on them. And we had a woman a couple of years ago who came in. We had an immersion program, and she came and said, look, I'm in my, I'm in my late 40s. I think everything's fine. I think I'm here for prevention, but it, uh, Alzheimer's is in my family. So she turned out to be single copy of APOE4, and her MOCA score was 23. I mean, she had very significant MCI uh, at the beginning of this, and yet she thought everything was fine because, you know, we, we tend to make little compensations. Okay, I don't have to quite remember as much. I'll try to write a few more things down. And the reality is this is sneaking up on us for years. So it's a really good idea to see where you stand. I think that's the frightening thing. Uh, as a woman, I, I guess I went from a baby brain to now this middle-aged fog, which yeah. I put down to alcohol and caffeine, which since being on the Ageing Project, I've cut out both of those things. So the only thing left for me really was overwork, no sleep, um, no time for myself, again, trying to reduce all of those things. And when you're still feeling like... Um, as the test asks you, you know, questions that you're like, oh, geez, that was a tough one. No, I don't remember that. Where are the keys? Or you walk into a room and don't know why you're there. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I have to remember a lot of scripts for, for work, which I seem to be able to do. I can remember a script very easily, rattle it off, but then it's gone for good. Yeah. Um, and, and this test was really interesting for me and probably more nerve wracking than my going for my driver's license, I think, <laughs> all those years ago. Don't let it bother you. Uh, you know, Know, it's it's just helping you to make sure that we, you know, that we make sure that n none of us really should have a problem. We should all get to a hundred and be sharp. And, and the thing is, we're so used to just like we're used to. Oh, everyone has a little hypertension. Everyone has a little, you know, hemoglobin A one C. It's not perfect. Um, you know, everyone's got a little confusion. No, that's not the way it should be. We should all be doing well. We should not have insulin resistance. You know, we should not have. Uh, you know, all the things we should not have metabolic syndrome and so forth and so on. And so it's just a good reminder. And getting on I me, mean, this is the way that will reduce the global burden of dementia. 
Well, it is frightening, isn't it? I know, I guess, the headline that has grabbed everybody's attention and, of course, driven us towards your work is your statement that our generation will be the last generation to fear Alzheimer's. Now, that is a massive statement. Uh, yes. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. I was, you know, in my early teens and, you know, she was the last of my grandparents. So this is something, obviously, that I have had in the back of my mind, um, whether it is genetic or not, whether this is the path that I'm heading down, whether there is anything you can do to stop it. There's and all I really knew about it, yeah, yeah was my mum saying, oh, she probably used, you know, metal fry pans or we better change our deodorant. That was really the only yeah. two key factors that I ever took away from the fact that my grandmother had Alzheimer's. We are ending the dark ages of this disease where people just don't know. And then now we can really look in very carefully and see all the things. And so I really do believe that. Uh, we have two daughters and um, they are in their early 30s and they, you know, they should not fear this disease. Whereas for my generation, I'm much older, obviously, and, and they, and you know, this was a huge, huge issue for us. It's the thing, you know, you're gonna, you're just going along in your career and suddenly, boom, you have Alzheimer's. And the doctor says, mm -hmm. we don't know why you got it. Um, you know, there's not much you can do. You can take a drug, but it's not gonna help much. And you're gonna go to a nursing home and die. And in the US, the average expenditure on Alzheimer's per person uh, is $350,000. It's horrible. And so and this is, of course, lots of it going into nursing home costs. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely horrible. And so this this needs to change. And for the first time now, it can change. We can see what to do. We can see where it's coming from. And we can see how to prevent it. And especially early on, reverse it. And we just published a trial. I think, I hope I, we sent you a copy uh, in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease last month, where 84% of our people actually improved. Uh, so it's there, there's so much. We have to change the way, fundamentally change the way we think about this problem. Dr. Dale, you've made this your life's work. What was it about this disease that attracted you to finding a solution to this problem? Yeah, um, when I was 18, I was a, a freshman at Caltech, and I read a book called The Machinery of the Brain by Dean Wooldridge. And I was just so fascinated. This book compared the workings of a computer, and I was interested in computers back then, to the workings of a, of a brain and all, all the things and all the workings and all the, the plasticity and, and uh, the damage and loss and all this sort of stuff. And I thought, you know, this is really fascinating. I need to understand the brain more. And as I started learn, learning about learning and memory, um, I got interested in why is it that it's so incredibly common that you have these degenerative diseases? Because you can, you know, you can argue, I think, pretty reasonably um, that uh, the the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure is in Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases. If you get ALS, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body disease, Alzheimer's, PSP, CBD, just go right down the list. Those are a death sentence. There, there is nothing. Even Parkinson's, where you have symptomatic treatment, you don't have treatment that actually changes the course of the disease or minimally changes the course of the disease. So this is an area of great failure. And so we wanted to understand why. And I set up my lab specifically uh, to, to look at what are the fundamental mechanisms? What are the things driving the cognitive decline? And what are the things driving the neurodegenerative process? Uh, and we published over 220 uh, papers on this, uh, looking at all these mechanisms. And the surprise was that when we got into it, we realized the entire way of thinking 
about neurodegenerative disease is wrong. And therefore, the entire way of approaching it clinically is completely backward. So are you putting all of those neurodegenerative diseases into the one box? Is this, I guess, the prevention that we're going to talk about shortly, something that can help with all of those things? Or is this very Alzheimer's specific? With Well, with modifications. So what we discovered is that instead of what's the, the current idea about Alzheimer's is that, as you've seen, it's about aggregated proteins. We could just get rid of those aggregated proteins, or it's about misfolded proteins, or prions, or tau, or amyloid, or herpes simplex, or type 3 diabetes, you know, on and on and on, reactive oxygen species. I mean, everyone's got an idea, but none of those ideas has led to an effective treatment. So when we looked at this problem and looked at all the signaling through the molecule called APP, amyloid precursor protein, which is the parent of amyloid, we realized that, wait a minute, if you, if you back up and say, what does this look like? You see that this is actually a network insufficiency. In other words, this is not a simple disease where if you make misfolded protein, you get sick. And if you get rid of the misfolded protein, you're better. Of course, people have tried that with all these different antibodies to amyloid. They don't work. We realize that what's happening here is you have this beautiful switch that is sensing where things stand. So what happens just like a whole country or a very large company, you have this decision. And so we, we think of this, the country Mybranistan. So, okay, you've got this amyloid precursor protein, right? And when things are good, you've got support from uh, from other neural networks, trophic factor support, hormonal support, not too much inflammation, not too much toxicity, then this thing goes in one, it's cut in a single site and it produces two peptides, SAPP-alpha and alpha-CTF, and one's for inside the cell, one's for outside the cell. And they go and say, things are good, we're going to grow and maintain and have neuroplasticity. Again, no different than what your country is doing when things are good. You don't have... You know, you don't have, you have major financial problems. Nobody's invading you. So you say, okay, it's time for us to grow and maintain. On the other hand, that same molecule, APP, when things are bad, you have ongoing inflammation. You have ongoing toxicity. You don't have enough energetic support. You don't have enough trophic support. It is now cleaved at three different sites, beta, gamma, and caspase site, to give you four peptides, SAPP-beta, A-beta, which by the way is what everyone's vilified in this disease, but it's just showing you that the, you're, the, you're sensing that things are not good, um, J-CASP and C31. Those things, now you've got two for outside and two for inside, are telling you you've got a downside. We have to protect itself. You literally are going to into a protective downsizing mode. No different than what happened to our countries during the pandemic, we were all told in early 2020, social distance, stay away, shelter in place, don't go to work, don't interact with other people. And of course, what happened? We went into a recession. We went into this protective downsizing mode. And that's exactly what your brain is doing when it senses these different things. And by the way, you know, the neuropathologists have shown us many different pathogens associated with Alzheimer's disease from herpes simplex to HHV6A to P. gingivalis, T. denticolis, spirochetes, fungi. It's amazing what you find in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease. And so this amyloid is turned out to be 
part of your response to that pathology. So you get invaded, again, just like your country saying, I can't grow and maintain, I'm being invaded by another country. So I'm going to now retreat and I'm going to scorch the earth. So a scorched earth retreat, I'm gonna live I'm going to live successfully and safely in a smaller country is exactly what your brain is doing. You're putting the amyloid, which is very much like napalm, around the perimeter and say, okay, we're going to cover the pathogens with this stuff. And as Professor Rudy Tanzi and Robert Moyer from Harvard showed a number of years ago, A-beta is a beautiful antimicrobial peptide. It turns out to be part of the innate immune system. It's actually rather amazing. So neurodegeneration is your body's way of protecting itself. So it shuts the brain down in order to be physically capable. Is that, so is that? Almost. A- so, so that's true in Alzheimer's. But so here's the thing. What we're suggesting then is that you have different neural subnetworks. You've got things that are critical for maintaining posture and maintaining your motor control, critical for Parkinson's. That's what goes awry in Parkinson's. Neuroplasticity. You've got motor power, which is what goes awry in ALS. You've got all these different sub-networks. Each one has a supply and a demand. And in ev- what's, what's common to all these diseases is that the demand exceeds the supply repeatedly or chronically. In Alzheimer's, it's got a certain demand, which is for these, you know, these major things, energetics, which we can go into, of course. In Parkinson's, it's a little different. There, it's all about, especially mitochondrial complex one, which is the critical uh, rate limiting step for Parkinson's. So you just inhibit that one complex, you get Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So each of these has something different. And by the way, we have some fantastic initial results now on macular degeneration. That's a different system that has its own supply and its own demand. And when you get macular degeneration, the supply to your macula is exceeded by the demand of your macula. Again, for inflammatory reasons, toxic reasons, vascular reasons, et cetera. So there are lots of overlaps, but each one you have to adapt to that neural subnetwork. So it is your genetics then that will make you susceptible to any one of those, whether you are more susceptible to Parkinson's, if you have any of those conditions that you mentioned previously, high toxicity, uh, your HEPs, whatever it might be. If you have that genetic disposition, you will be likely to have the Parkinson's effect. Or if you have Alzheimer's and you have those other conditions and your body is inflamed and you're not functioning properly, that's what's going to trigger the Alzheimer's in in your body. Is that right? Well, so there's no question. So for each of these, we have a supply and a demand. And as I mentioned, you know, higher demand, lower supply. But what happens is your genetics will basically add a delta. You're going to put this higher or lower. So for example, let's say you're an APOE33, uh, which is about three quarters of the population. Then you have to get pretty high on your demand and low on your supply to get Alzheimer's. You only have only a 9% chance during your lifetime of getting it. You add in a single copy of APOE4, boom, that bumps up the demand and reduces the supply a little bit. So now you go up to about a 30% lifetime risk. And if you have two copies of APOE4, you go up to about a 70% risk. Most likely you will get Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Now, again, we encourage everyone, please get evaluated for your APOE status and other genetics of Alzheimer's, but APOE is the most common one. 
and so that you can prevent this problem. You know, the reality again is that virtually nobody should get this problem. We're living in the dark ages of Alzheimer's where people just keep their eyes closed and say, okay, you got Alzheimer's, sorry, there's nothing we can do. That's horrible. Everybody should know just as they do with heart disease. You can go get a calcium score and you can check your triglyceride to HDL ratio and you can check your LDL particle number and your HSCRP and all those things and get a pretty good idea. Um, am I on my way to heart disease or not? And there's a lot you can do about it. Alzheimer's is the same. The brain's a little more complicated. There are more things you need to check, but the idea is the same. And so, yes, the genetics will change your proclivity. But for the vast majority of people, it's not your fate. So 95% of people with Alzheimer's have sporadic Alzheimer's, where the genetics will increase risk, but they're not, they don't have complete penetrance. There's a 5% of people with Alzheimer's truly have familial Alzheimer's, where their mutation in APP, PS1, or PS2, those are the three genes, leads to everybody who has that mutation gets the disease. Now, having said that, we're working with some people who actually have those mutations. And so far, so good. We'll see. Um, can we now, we, we won't know for years, can we prevent those people from getting it, even though it's been an absolute death sentence in the past? Uh, so, you know, we'll see. They still have that same idea. It's just that they are really pushed their supply and demand out of kilter. Mm -hmm. So everything that we're learning here on the Aging Project is really about prevention and it doesn't matter whether we're speaking to uh, neuro-ophthalmologists, whether we're talking to functional dentists, whether we're talking to vegans, experts, meditation guides, it's really all about starting now and that yes. prevention. So there is no magic silver bullet, as you say, when there's particularly all these I guess, uh, things coming at us and in our lives to actually take that one pill that's going to save us, it's not going to happen. But prevention really is the key, even when it comes to diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Well, the good news is we found in our, in our trial that we just published that we could reverse cognitive decline, even in people who are in relatively late stages. But you're absolutely right. The earlier you start, the easier it is and the more complete it is. So here's the, another big problem with Alzheimer's. You go through four phases. Phase one, you're asymptomatic. Now you can still find abnormalities on a PET scan, sometimes even into your 20s but you're asymptomatic for a period. Phase two, SCI, subjective cognitive impairment, where you know there's something wrong. Often your spouse, maybe your coworkers know there's something wrong, but you're still capable of scoring in the normal range on your testing. That lasts about 10 years, as the epidemiologists have shown, really striking. And then the third of four phases is what is called MCI, mild cognitive impairment. So this is unfortunately being used by doctors. Oh, it's mild cognitive impairment. Come back next year. This is like telling someone, you don't worry, you've got mildly, you've got mildly metastatic cancer. It's a relatively right. late stage of the problem. And then the fourth and final is where we actually call it dementia. Now you actually are affecting activities of daily living. So if we could get everyone starting in the first two phases for prevention or for SCI, Virtually everybody who has that, who, who is starting at that time, does great. Now, in our trial, we waited until MCI, uh, just because those are the ones that are typically clinically treated, and uh, mm -hmm. still had 84% of the people who improved. But yes, of course, we would absolutely prefer to treat everyone with prevention or with, uh, with SCI, where virtually 100% of the people return to normal. So we're talking about brain exercises here. 
just well, stimulating different areas of our brain to keep us, uh, our minds active? Well, it goes far, far beyond that. So uh, people often say, oh, is this lifestyle? What is this? Now, so here's the idea. Mm -hmm. It is the new medicine, the new approach. And by the way, this is going to be obviously important for longevity, is that mm -hmm. you first, uh, you, you treat people like complex systems instead of like bankrolls. Instead of saying, give me a bunch of money and I might give you a drug. Um, no, or I'll give you a healthcare system where you come in when you're at the end stage. And what a horrible, barbaric system. The idea here is that you look at all the players. And the good news is we know the players in Alzheimer's. We know the somewhat different players in Parkinson's. We know the somewhat different players in macular degeneration and so forth and so on. Genetic, biochemistry, et cetera. So now what you do is you look at this and we, we develop something called recode report for people who have symptoms, reversal of cognitive decline and pre-code report for prevention. So this is now a computer-based algorithm that goes through many, many different variables, looks at your genetics, looks at your biochemistry, looks at your history, and then says, okay, here's where your issues are. And we're going to target those things. As an example, mm -hmm. you may have as your main issues, insulin resistance. And maybe Amanda has, as her main issues, maybe a leaky gut. So these are two different things treated in very different ways. Now, you're right. There is a core of things. So, yes, we'd love for everyone to include brain training. We'd love for everyone to include exercise. So we have a seven cores, seven basics, which is diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, targeted supplementation, and detox. Everybody should do those. But then there will be people, for example, who will have P. gingivalis, which is from your oral microbiome, or may have herpes simplex from their lip. And those are treated appropriately. There will be people who have biotoxins. We have people all the time that don't realize they are living in homes where there are very high levels of trichothecenes, for example. Something which, by the way, I was never trained in neurology uh, to think about mycotoxins as one of the causes of Alzheimer's, but they are certainly... And is that, sorry, Dr. Dell, is that like molds or fungi well, that are growing within your home or spores that are in the house? Yes. Now, there are many molds mm -hmm. that don't make these, but there are five especially. Um, and so if you've got, uh, if you've got aspergillus or, penis, uh, or penicillium uh, or stachybotrys or ketomium or wallemia, those are the big five. Um, that make these mycotoxins. And as Dr. Richie Shoemaker showed years ago, um, these things actually are quite toxic. They give you something that he named chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. Uh, and you can treat this very effectively. And we find that this is a relatively common contributor to Alzheimer's disease. Would you see that showing up in anything else? Would, would that, um, I don't know, lead to... Um severe OCD or um, mild fits, or are you going to see any triggers in youth um, for particularly those mold? And here in Australia, we have we have chronic mold problems in yeah. a lot of our homes across the country. And I, I do believe that this is a trigger for a lot of other um, conditions that people have that you just can't see, you can't sense. Um, we don't even know they're there. And yet we're probably suffering from or showing signs um, in other ways. Does it affect all sorts? Absolutely. It is one of the biggest health problems right now because it is being ignored. And as I understand it, actually, I got a note uh, saying that the NHS in Australia refuses to recognize mycotoxins as a cause of human mm. illness. Just, you know, unbelievably mm. short-sighted. 
Um, the, the data are overwhelming. Uh, Dr. Shoemaker has published multiple papers on this. He's published books on it. He's published transcriptomic analyses. So he's looking at you know, RNA changes, um, just on and on, biochemical changes. As he's shown, um, these can be associated with Parkinson's. They can be associated with cognitive decline. They can be associated with rashes, with lung disease, with behavioral issues, uh, with arthritis. I mean, just on and on and on. So uh, yeah, take a look at his website, or 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 uh, which is Surviving Mold. And I know, of course, there are excellent groups in Australia, also dealing with mold-related illness. Of course, we'd all like to sweep it under the rug, literally and figuratively, um, but the reality is, unfortunately, it is a contributor to human illness. Mm. And every home has that. And I come from sort of a building background. So this is really interesting for me that a lot of homes here, we renovate, there was always the lead issue early on. Yes. Asbestos, obviously, um, is another one. But things that are just growing in every home, in every paint, in every surface, in every finish. Um, these things are, are, are signs and we're going to see signs and symptoms of them much sooner than we're going to see that um, brain degeneration. Yes, you know, here's the, the fundamental problem. And, and you know, I say to people that what we're witnessing now is the Titanic of mainstream medicine going down right in front of our eyes, having crashed mm -hmm. into the iceberg of chronic illness. Um, this is the problem. We are, we've done very well as physicians with things like pneumococcal pneumonia and tuberculosis and even HIV uh, and even fairly well with, uh, with COVID-19. Uh, these are simple uh, infectious illnesses. We have not done well with complex chronic illnesses, and, and the vast majority of us are dying. Cancers, uh, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative conditions, chronic renal failure, COPD, all these sorts of things, Di type 2 diabetes. And so the reality is that humans are very complex organisms, and we physicians don't have time to spend 72 hours with one person. You, know, you can't just sit there for days and days. It's in, it's out, it's prescription pad or off to surgery. So we need to change fundamentally the way we practice medicine, where we get the entire populace on some basic prevention. A few of those people will slip through the cracks. Okay, now we spend more time with those people and do an additional evaluation, additional treatment. Now, a few of those people will go even further. Okay, then they need more. And you have essentially have an iterative approach rather than everyone gets five or 10 minutes and you're just gonna give them a, a quick prescription because it doesn't allow the physicians to, uh, to allow themselves to say, hmm, maybe this is a mycotoxin related illness, or maybe this is related to you know, something else that we don't realize yet. There's, there are so many contributors to human illness. This new era, we are literally witnessing the end of the pharmaceutical era and the dawn of the precision era in medicine. And now the precision era, of course, will include some pharmaceuticals, but it will look at the why. Why is each person getting these various conditions and then target the things that are actually causing it? And that's what gets the best outcomes in complex chronic illnesses.
Oh, it's so exciting and there is so much hope there, but a lot of it falls back on the individual. As you say, yes. we can't sit there with our own GPs for, for hours on end, so it's really up to us to take care of ourselves from today. Uh, you mentioned supplements earlier and I know obviously we have spoken about the fact that, you know, food out of the supermarket probably isn't giving us the nutrients that we really need. Can you give us a bit of thought on, on what is good practice, what is yes. great prevention practice um, and what we can be doing starting today yeah. uh, to, to help our GPs with our own health down the track. It's such a good point. And again, this comes back to hierarchies, just as public health does, you know, get some basics and then add, et cetera. The hierarchy in health, again, it has to change completely from the first thing as a prescription pad. The hierarchy is natural first. So diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, things that are good for you, things that you know, are, are part of normal life. And you're right, you have the people now they are gonna eat things from soils that are very poor. So now they're going to have poor you know, various vitamins. And so yes, you then have to look, you can look at very easily uh, with some basic uh, lab tests and you can see if someone's low in vitamin D or low in choline, an incredibly common problem, low in omega-3s, another incredibly common problem, low in, uh, low in B12, uh, high in homocysteine, you know, all of these things are, are issues. And so, yes, we are, we are suffering from these, uh, these imperfections in our soils and in the food that we eat. And of course, Robert Lustig, I think, has done the best job of anyone uh, with his book, Metabolical, at going over the horrors that are the modern diet. Oh my gosh, the, the horrible stuff that children eat for breakfast, um, the horrible stuff that we, you know, that we eat with factory farming and toxic meats and you know, horribly non-nutritive, sugar-laden, uh, uh, chemical things. Whereas he says, you can't really call it food, you should be calling it poison based on its biochemical properties and its, its effects on you. So uh, th this is critical and just doing the right things, absolutely critical. Now, beyond that, as you indicate, sometimes you do need supplements. And again, we come at this kind of from the other end, not saying what supplement is good for you, but saying what is optimal for your synaptic chemistry. We want to see your vitamin D in the best situation, typically 50 to 80 range for your best synaptic chemistry. And then this affects hundreds of genes that are related to neuroplasticity. We wanna see you have appropriate choline, omega-3s. For some people, they mean, may need some resolvents. And uh, Professor Charles Searhan from Harvard has done a beautiful job developing resolvents, which help to resolve inflammation. And of course, when you're resolving your inflammation, you wanna for sure be looking for what's causing it. Do you have a leaky gut? Do you have a poor oral microbiome? Um, do you have an undiagnosed infection? We see this all the time. One of the people that we worked with uh, did very well, went from 35th percentile to 98th percentile uh, on her cognitive testing, and then started having a little backsliding after a few years. We said, something's been missed. And she turned mm -hmm. out to have a relatively common problem, which was a tick-borne illness called Babesia. And so when her Babesia was treated, now she's right back up doing great once again. So, you know, these things don't come for no reason. And you've got to dig in and find out what's causing the problem. And we've got a tremendous armamentarium. You can increase your BDNF with whole coffee fruit extract or with, 
you know, exercising. You can improve your choline, your D3, on and on and on. Um, you can lower your, your inflammation. You, there are all sorts of natural ways to treat various pathogens like Lyme disease and things like that. So this is a very exciting era where we really should be seeing dramatic reductions in all of these complex chronic illnesses, even things like schizophrenia and, and, uh, you know, and, and ASD and ADHD and all of these sorts of things as we learn to do the right things. It's phenomenal, isn't it? You must be um, incredibly excited about your field, but also beyond frustrated um, that this information isn't as widely recognised as it could be. And it's going to take a long time to filter down, but I hope that we are playing a very small part in that. Um, what are your thoughts on um, ketosis, for instance? Because these are little things that we could be doing every day and that are easy to put into our routine, um, an easy lifestyle change to make. Do you have things that we can do today yeah. um, that are going to help us on our Absolutely. journey? Absolutely. A super quick pause in today's conversation. Our hope is that our sister platform, youmusttryit.com, becomes your home of aging well. It's a collection of our most loved products and a place just for us that we want to build together. Think low-tox skincare, makeup, perfume, supplements, gifts, and so much more. Please join our community by signing up at youmusttryit.com once you're finished listening to today's podcast. Now, back to our conversation. Well, and, and ketosis has turned out to be one of the most important things to do. And why is that? Okay, so your brain, as you know, you've got glucose and you've got ketones. Those are the two sources for your brain's fuel. Now, what happens in people who have cognitive decline, they typically lose both. So when I see people who are now having cognitive decline, I consider that an emergency with their energetics. And the energetics are one of the big four groups. The big four groups that contribute to cognitive decline are inflammation from whatever source, uh, are um, toxicity from whatever source, reduced energetics, and reduced trophic support. Those are the big four groups. And each one of them has you know, dozens and dozens of, of, of pieces to it. So what happens is what we want to do to get the best outcomes we want to restore your ability to use glucose. That means making you insulin sensitive once again. And most people are insulin resistant when they have cognitive decline. And it's again, it's because of the horrible diet that we have and because of the stress we have and all the other associated things. But we also wanna make you be able to make and utilize ketones. And at the beginning, just take some exogenous ketones because that's that bridges the gap. Professor Stephen Kinane from Canada has shown beautifully that you can bridge that energetic gap initially with exogenous ketones. Over time, sure, you can get into some endogenous ketosis, but trying to do this, again, remember this fundamental of the problem is a network insufficiency. So if the first thing you do is go into a crash fasting period, you're actually hurting yourself. And we've seen people go backwards. Mm -hmm. Now, the trick here and the tricky part of it is you're going for both of these things together. You're going for insulin sensitivity, and that does help to have some fasting there to do that, but you're also going for ketosis. So if you try to do it in a crash approach, then you're going to lose because you're now having more insufficiency. So the easy way to go, just start with some exogenous ketones. Now you've got some, you've helped to bridge that gap. Now ease yourself into 
your insulin sensitivity. Now you, when you can use both, you are by definition metabolically flexible. And that's the way the brain works best. You've now started to heal that insufficiency. And of course, there are other things. If you've got a lot of inflammation going on, that's putting more drag on the system. You've got to identify that and correct that as well. But at least you've got the energetics going. And by the way, the other two parts of energetics are oxygenation and mitochondrial function. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask about oxygen. So is that uh, oxygen chambers or oxygen ozone saunas? Where do we go for that? Yeah, the main thing there is to make sure that your oxygenation isn't dropping at night. So the big problem there is people have undiagnosed sleep apnea or they have undiagnosed upper airway resistance syndrome, UARS. And so these people are going downhill. And when then they realize like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know that my oxygen was dropping every night. No wonder I'm having problems here at night. And so that is a contributor. And again, uh, it's been pointed out that about 80% of people with sleep apnea are not diagnosed with sleep apnea. So we just have to dig in there. We have to look for this. And that is through, uh, we spoke to a functional dentist, Dr. B, and he was talking all about this being picked up yes. as we're children. So sort of pediatrics should be looking at our, our facial structure and our jaw bones and things from that age uh, that we find out when we're older, oh, my partner just says I snore a lot. Well, that's not good enough. That's going to cause us all sorts of dramas as we move forward. Yeah. And you've got to fix those to get best outcomes. Okay, and sleep is obviously a huge player in that, as you just mentioned, getting enough sleep, uh, whether it's quality or not, that is up to us to look at, but making sure that we set that as something that is very important for us. Exactly. And, you know, you'll damage your sleep if you're not getting enough oxygenation. And uh, I've just had a, a friend of mine from many, many years ago, right? And he's having his own struggles right now. So I said, okay, look, you've got to get all these things evaluated. He did. In fact, his electrophysiology showed that what he's complaining about is absolutely accurate. And yet when I said to him, well, don't forget, you got to get a sleep study. He's like, well, I don't think I really have any trouble. Well, you don't know. So please don't, <laughs> don't assume. Just because nobody complained about snoring, that does not mean that your oxygenation is perfect at night. Is there a test that you can do, like your your cognitive test that you have on your site is a great place to start. Is there a deeper dive if you've got serious concerns early? Like you can have a colonoscopy. Can you have a, a brainoscopy, a cognoscopy? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, everybody should do a cognoscopy, um, which is three things, some blood tests, uh, the online cognitive assessment we just talked about. And then if you're symptomatic or, or not scoring well on tests, then you also want to have an MRI with volumetrics. But if you're doing fine, you don't need to do that part. And yes, just go, I would just go on, um, go on drbredison.com and that'll lead you to it. We've trained many physicians in Australia. We've trained over 2000 physicians in 10 different countries and all over the US, including in Australia was, I have to say they were ahead of the curve. Um, some of the first physicians came from Australia and I believe there are something like 20 different ones throughout Australia now. Um, Dave Jenkins, I've talked to a lot. I, mean, I know he comes in and out of Australia, New Zealand, um, and there are others uh, throughout. And how would we search those? Are we looking for cognoscopies or are we looking uh, for... No, just going on the, this is just going on the Apollo Health Co. site. Would you need a referral to see these doctors from your GP? Uh, you shouldn't. No, you should be able to go directly. In fact, uh, the way we have it set up here you can actually get the tests online and then take them uh, to your doctor. 
So the best course of action is to do your CQ test on the Apollo Health website. You then yes. get the recommendation for the recode or the pre-code yes. and you'll go through that process yes. and then you have a document or information that you can take forward to one of the, um, yeah. the physicians recommended there on your Apollo Health site all across Australia as it would seem. Exactly. Unbelievable, Dr. Dale. There is so much here for us. And I know this is probably one of the more technical conversations that we have had here on the Aging Project. Where can people find you if they want to dive deeper into this topic and obviously have that in investment in it? Where's the best place for us to stay in touch? Yeah, so there's lots of information. Um, you can look actually at the books, The End of Alzheimer's, The End of Alzheimer's Program, which is actually just going to come out in its new paperback, updated paperback version. Uh, next month, and then, uh, uh, and then, of course, uh, the newest book is uh, First Survivors of Alzheimer's, where we have just wonderful stories from these people who actually reversed their cognitive decline and what it did to their families and their lives is uh, really uh, impressive to me, which is why I asked them to put this together. Uh, and then, of course, there is a uh, Facebook, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Uh, you can also, uh, I encourage everyone to get the, the CQ test. So, uh, my CQ test is the easy way to do it. It's a free test. Uh, what did it take you, about 20, 25 minutes uh, to go through yep, this? Well, I'd like to think I was pretty sharp, but yes, it was about 20 minutes and there is lots of great instruction there to make sure you have a quiet room, no other distractions, have your toilet stop before you do it and don't worry about the nerves if it's the first exam you've done in a while. Exactly. And then, of course, uh, Instagram and Twitter uh, as, as well as Facebook. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Doctor. It has been an absolute honour talking to you. Um, and I know everyone is going to want to dive deeper into this and, of course, start making changes today. And hopefully, um, as you say, this will be the last generation that needs to worry about Alzheimer's. It absolutely can be and it should be if we all work together. So thanks so much, Shelley, for having me on. Let's all stay sharp to 100. <laughs> You might say we've had a good brain workout today. We've been exposed to words, acronyms and ideas that are new. And how did your brain respond? Did it stay curious or shut down because it felt too unfamiliar? Whatever it was, just note it and don't be hard on yourself. I can tell you mine did a little bit of both during the conversation. Here at The Aging Project, we want to encourage you to stay curious and learn more about topics that might be unfamiliar. I think that's what Dale did for us today. My next step is to pop on to the Apollo Health website, which is apollohealthco.com, and read his book, The End of Alzheimer's. It's safe to say my knowledge on this topic is low, but this first conversation has motivated me to learn more. I know many of you have family members dealing with this disease, or perhaps you're someone who's noticed some cognitive changes yourself, which is both daunting and scary. We get that and we are thinking of you. We hope today's conversation has armed you with more knowledge and given you a path to go and learn more, to take some positive action. Like Dr. Dale said, just like polio and other diseases before my time, here's to the end of Alzheimer's. I'll catch you soon. The Aging Project is brought to you by Polly Studio. They're our go-to team for all things podcasting.